The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of Jubagali, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. The body is the arena where power and politicised control play out. British novelist and cultural critic Olivia Lang's latest book, Everybody, draws on the lives of Nina Simone, Andrea Dworkin and Malcolm X to explore the body and its discontents. At Antidote 2022, Olivia Lang joined host and author Jesse Tu in a thoughtful examination of how bodies encounter oppression and resistance and reshape the world. This talk was recorded live at the Sydney Opera House in September 2022. Hello, hello, good afternoon, and welcome to this session of Antidote here at the Sydney Opera House. My name is Jessie Tu, and it is my great pleasure and joy to be with you this afternoon for a conversation with the inimitable Olivia Lang. Let's get things started. If you are here in this audience tonight, I'm sure you have, like me, felt the power of her words. And like me, you have marveled at the way she melds history with beautifully rendered personal memoir, enlivening historical figures and ideas in a way that makes them feel astonishingly prescient and present. In all her works, including her award-winning book of fiction, Crudo, Olivia weaves together art history, political commentary, and personal introspection. Now, in her latest book, Everybody, she looks more directly at the body and its fight for freedom, both individually and collectively. Detailing the struggles of the last century, from feminism to gay liberation to the civil rights movement, we meet important figures, including Adrian Dworkin, Susan Sontag and Nina Simone, icons who have shown how bodies can be destroyed by patriarchal systems and how they encounter oppression and resistance to ultimately build a better world for everyone. So now it is my great pleasure, delight, to welcome to the screen in front of you, live streaming from the UK, the wonderful Olivia Lang. <laughs> Olivia, hello. Hi, that was such a nice introduction, Jessie. Thank you so much. Oh, pleasure, pleasure. We are here to talk about your wonderful book, Everybody. So I wanted to start um, by asking you, in your previous books, you wrote about the body in relation to its subjectivity to the world through the lens of subject matters such as alcoholism and loneliness. Can you tell us why, Olivia, you decided to pursue writing this book that directly addresses the body and its freedoms? I think each book sort of comes out of the previous book. And when I was writing the book about loneliness, The Lonely City, I had such a strong sense that there was a narrative going on about people's bodies, about the pain people carried in their bodies, the sexual shame some people carried, the sense of illness and the shame of illness. And I could see that that was one of the causative factors of loneliness. But I also felt like I hadn't really got to the bottom of it. And at the same time, we were inside a political climate that was becoming increasingly violent and aggressive towards certain kinds of bodies. White supremacy was on the rise globally. In England, Brexit was happening. 
in America, there was the rise of the far right and Trump. And it was just, it was the refugee crisis. It was just this sense that the language around police had suddenly become much more extreme, much more violent. And I really wanted to know why. I really wanted to understand what the deeper roots of that was. And to look back into the 20th century and to try and understand some of those things about why certain kinds of bodies are regarded as such a threat, but also, and really crucially, what we can do about it and what people have done about it, what those freedom movements have looked like. Mm, mm. And you talk about this idea very beautifully in the book about uh, the body as a site of attack. Can you help us understand precisely what you meant by that? In some ways, I mean that very literally, that the body is a body that can be queer bashed, that the body can be subject to racial attacks, that the body can be put in a refugee camp. Depending on the kind of body you live in, you're going to have certain different kinds of experience. But it's also much subtler than that. I think it doesn't have to be an act of physical violence. It's a sense that we exist within a hierarchy of bodies that we didn't consent to, that it, it already exists before we're born. So we exist into it. We arrive into it and discover that certain kinds of bodies are regarded very differently to other kinds. And I think my sense of politicization around that happened very young because I grew up in a gay family in a very homophobic state-sponsored homophobia in Britain in the 1980s because of Section 28, which was a law that said schools couldn't teach about gay families. It's a pretended family and local councils couldn't give information about homosexuality. So already as a small child, I had the sense that some bodies are valued more than others. Some people's ways of loving are regarded as allowed and some aren't. And I think mm. that sort of politicization took, took me outwards into feminism, into thinking about race, all of these different arenas. Mm. Um, I guess since a lot of things in the last two years, a lot of things have been happening, the pandemic, the horrifying um, rolling back of women's rights and reproductive rights in the US. Have you thought differently about the definition of bodily autonomy since writing this book? That is such a good question. I think the thing that has happened particularly with America and the rolling back of Roe versus Wade is just, to, you know, I've sort of argued these things, but to see it happen that viscerally, to see that a state really can control what we regard as our private freedoms, our private experience of our own bodies, that that can be absolutely changed literally overnight by a government. I think that should make all of us <laughs> desire to put our bodies on the streets, desire to try and change those rulings that, that affect us so utterly to the, to the core of our beings. Mm, mm, absolutely. And, um, Throughout your book, we do meet um, plenty of writers and thinkers, um, some well-known, such as Susan Sontag and James Baldwin, though also many who have been largely forgotten by the mainstream. And one such figure is the man who you use as your North Star. Um, and this, of course, is Wilhelm Reich, a protege of Freud. Um, tell us a little bit about him, Olivia. Uh, how did he come into your research for this book and why did you use him as a thread? to tie in your ideas? Um, I've written books where there have been characters that I've loved and very much wanted to have at the heart of a book and this, in everybody that wasn't the case really. Reich sort of forced his way in. He is a very, very complicated character. He was a sexual liberationist. He was involved in socialist struggles. He really was trying to marry together the ideas of Freud and Marx in a way that I think is still 
deeply meaningful and significant. And at the same time, he drifted towards becoming really a crank, having quite extreme ideas about health and healthcare. Um, and in, in the initial proposal, I thought that he would occupy a small space in the book. And I gradually realized that every area I wanted to look at, there was Reich. If I wanted to think about prisons, there was Reich. He died in a prison cell. If I wanted to think about sexual freedom, he'd been involved in sexual liberation movements. He, he had this sort of ability to occupy all sorts of different territories. And then I think the other thing that was so significant about him is he wasn't always right. He wasn't always likable. Not all of his ideas are something that you can sort of seize onto or approve of. And in a moment where we're really desiring pure, perfect heroes, it felt to me very interesting to have somebody that's that complicated. And I think that runs through all the characters in the book in a way. They're all people who are very difficult. And part of what I thought was so significant about that is people who are struggling with all their being against these systems of violence or systems of oppression, they don't get out of that fight undamaged. They're affected by it. And I really wanted to sort of draw out those nuances of how people can have very beautiful ideals about freedom and at the same time be really damaged in their lives and in their relations with others by those structures that they're also living under. Yeah, yeah. I love that point you touched on. He wasn't perfect. And this was a question I was going to ask you later on in our conversation, but since it's come up, um, this idea of like... Um, the pervasive cancel culture that we're now swimming in. Um, you, you, you mentioned Reich. Um, he, I believe, like you said, uh, refused to treat gay patients. Uh, mm. Another figure that, and he was also very uh, abusive to his second wife, um, Ilse Orndorff. Uh, another figure that you look at, um, Mar Marcus Hirschfeld, he believed in welfare eugenics. Um, I guess, like Olivia, I'm wondering, what is this obsession that we have in this modern day society with having like needing our heroes to be absolutely perfect where does this come from yeah i th i think it comes i think it comes from two things i think it comes from fear and i think it comes from a really sort of well-meaning desire to to call out examples of racism or sexism that people encounter especially online and i think that that can become something different almost a sort of desire to crush any instant in which somebody has been wrong, held the wrong opinions, been ignorant. And that troubles me because I think none of us come out of the egg with perfect opinions. We mm. learn them on our journey through life. We learn them through experiences. We start out with small lives and our lives hopefully get larger and larger. With the people in this book, and we could include Nina Simone in this. Nina Simone was also violent towards her daughter, very mm, violent. Mm. And that's something that really isn't talked about very much. You know, people want to make her into a hero of the civil rights movement, which she absolutely is. But at the same time, she experienced horrendous levels of racism. Why would we expect that person to be able to pass unscathed through those experiences and not, ex not carry on the kind of traumatic behaviours. So I think that's something that is really important to me is the idea that we exist inside traumatising systems. We are all on some level traumatised by those systems. Let's be soft with each other about negotiating around that as we try and move to ideally a better, fairer, juster world. Yeah, what I love when I was reading through all the different characters that you have in your book is this like extraordinary ability for you to approach an historical figure in a very humane way. 
and like and and kind of address the way in which when someone is being dominated by high power they like there I think there were a couple of instances Olivia where in your book you actually say that um when someone like one of the figures in your book their uh, husband was being was beating them and she ended up I think it might have been Adrian Dawkin she ended up like abusing her dog and that happened a couple of times it's just like we always go for the one with less power we always yeah that's like literally what a bully does right yeah and that actually that's the most moving I think of all those stories because Dawkin is somebody who you know invested to every inch of her being in movements of non-violence that's really what she's about and that she admits that I mean would she admit that now would she admit that and see what happened to her on Twitter mm. perhaps not mm. the, the courage to say that and she wrote it in an op-ed for the LA Times where she talked about domestic violence and sexual violence which she'd experienced but the shame she carried around about that was almost the, the heaviest of her many heavy burdens and I think just understanding how interconnected these things are that there isn't We'd love there to be, you know, the evildoer and the victim and those things to be pure separate categories that are completely encapsulated. And they aren't. They bleed into each other all the time. We are all capable of acts of cruelty. And if we exist in a culture where we can't talk about those acts of cruelty and we can't say, I too have been a perpetrator mm. in these ways, I think we are screwed. Because what are we doing? Just making a world where only the victim can speak and no one else can ever admit to any complexity in their character. Yeah, absolutely. We are then existing as false people, I think, because nobody is totally that character. No, 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 none, none of us are perfect. Yeah. Um, I wanted to go back to this idea of bodily autonomy, Olivia, um, and ask you, I guess, your thoughts about um, what's been happening, like we said, Roe v. Wade turning, um, a lot of Black Lives Matter uh, protests in the last two years. Uh, what have you been thinking about lately in relation to... Um, what you say in your book, how there are rules about what the black body is allowed to do and what the female body is allowed to do. What do you think it says about these movements that they constantly need to be refought? Well, <laughs> that's the dismal business that we're in, isn't it? I think one of the things, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book in the first place was this sense that all of these movements are being pushed back, that we're in a moment globally of pushback. And... Um, and this is happening within all sorts of different movements. I think in America, gay rights, we're going to see, it's already started the pushback on people being able to get PrEP. So people mm. who are HIV positive losing their treatment because that sense of those right-wing people who are now trying to take control are horrified by any bodily diversity. They're horrified by, it's a white supremacist, deeply racist, deeply homophobic, deeply misogynist system and that sense that anybody who diverges from that doesn't deserve to have rights the only person who deserves to have rights is this particular kind of body they've always been there but they're in ascendancy right now so I think if anything my feelings have become more and more urgent but also I am tr troubled by how hard it is especially by way of the internet, for us to find consensus about how to push back on that, find consensus about what we're struggling for. And maybe that's a very interesting moment to be in, that there's a lot of voices, there's a lot of different sense of what the right way to move is. But I think it's, I think it's a frightening moment. Nonetheless, going back and looking through the last hundred years of freedom struggles, 
this is what it's like. This is this is what the um, battle for justice looks like. I think it is a step forward, a step back, two steps forward, mm. a step back. It keeps going like that. And for me, the idea that it all had to be solved in my own lifetime felt an insurmountable battle. And thinking about it with a much longer view and realising that this is something we participate in. It's going to be going on and on and on for centuries. And we participate, we take our role in it, and we do the part that we can. That feels in some way liberating in itself because that's an easier thing to do, to, to participate but not to assume that anything is going to be permanently secure. Yeah, totally. Being in a kind of like a permanently liminal space yeah that's beautifully beautifully um put uh there is a line in your book that has sort of encapsulated so beautifully everything I have been thinking about for many years um rather morosely uh you say people who aren't subject to rules do not often believe that they exist what do we do about that how can we help them see (laughs) How can we help them see? I mean, this comes back, I think, to something that the writer Sarah Shulman, who I'm a huge fan of, says that it's the inability to believe that other people are real. And I think this is where the artist comes in. The job of the artist is to make a case for other people being real by way of novels, by way of films, by way of art making, to show other experiences, to make those other experiences visible, tangible, sensual, to engage, it's not just empathy, but to engage a sense of reality of different kinds of beings. And it isn't just, we're talking about human bodies today, but it isn't just human bodies. It's the whole climate change story of other species as well. It's believing in the reality of other beings and our vast interdependence on being a body of beings rather than an individual body that deserves rights over another individual body. Mm. That is what's got us into the entire mess that we're in. Yeah. Um, And uh, speaking of artists who inspired a lot of these um, movements, uh, Anna Mendieta was someone who worked during uh, the second wave movement, which you write deeply about, um, and I do want to go to I'll go on to ask you about her, Olivia. But I guess my first question before we get onto that is, um, you do, like I said, write a lot about the second wave movement in this book. Um, and as we all know, we can't talk about uh, bodily freedom or autonomy without talking about it through the lens of half the world's population, the half that disproportionately um, experiences gendered violence. And in your book, you retrace the uh, porn wars during that time, which I suppose in in many ways we're still debating. Um, I wonder, Olivia, what what were the specific arguments from that period of feminism that you wanted people to keep in mind uh, as they're reading your book, considering the current climate of women's rights? That's interesting. So this was really the sort of fault line on which second wave feminism founded was the two sides of the argument are the Dworkin side, which is porn is a weapon of misogyny. Everything that happens inside porn, especially the violence inside porn, is real. It's what men want to do. And it's this very sort of black and white vision. We must stop this. We mustn't have this kind of sexual experience that is in itself patriarchy acting out its hatred of women. It's It's... It's an extreme position. I'll come back to what I think potentially about it in the present day, but I'll just spell out the the other side, which is 
the sexual liberationist argument, which is much more about why don't we just allow people to have the fantasies that they want to? Why don't we experience the sexual as a realm of the imaginary where we can participate in different dynamics around power? We can taste out what those might feel like. And that isn't necessarily what we want in our, in fact, often is very much not what we want in our actual yeah. lived lives. So those positions became very polarised. That argument became incredibly painful for a lot of people. And it, it really tore that era of feminism apart. In fact, it's funny, I, I met somebody who'd read the book a couple of days ago and she came up to me and said, I just need to tell you I really disagree with what you said about Dawkin. I was like, wow, I love Dawkin, but yes, I didn't agree with her on the porn wars. Good to see they're still running. And that, that sort of feeling of how intensely people held those positions is interesting to look at in the light of the present day where... A lot of what Dawkins said, and I wasn't on Dawkins' side in that in that period of time, mm. but a lot of what she said has really come to pass. Yeah. She could see that kind of current of extreme violence that I think now for very young people, people just coming into their sexual lives, is just the everyday background, the, the sort of violence of internet porn and sort of misogyny of baseline internet porn, not even anything that's particularly hardcore, just the sort of stuff that kids are likely to see. It does embody misogyny. She was absolutely right about that. While I still hope that doesn't mean that we need to shut down on sexuality altogether, I think it's inescapable that when you live inside a system that hates women to the degree it does, of course it's going to seep into the sexual. It's in every area of our lives. So I think while I still part with talking in all kinds of areas, she she was the person in the book who emerged the most to me as somebody who was speaking this terrifying incantatory voice directly into our own time she mm. saw things that they didn't want to see that they still don't want to see and she articulated them with such power that I feel like I would like to give her books to young women and they can you know they can diverge from it they can disagree with it but to know that somebody saw the world like that and that their perhaps perceptions that that's how the world is are accurate I think is very useful it's it's very almost grounding to see somebody say it is as you suspected it might be. Yeah. And it's so beautiful the way you um, capture her rigor and her essence and her sort of visceral anger. I feel like there's no one else like her anymore in this world. It's kind of sad that we've lost her because her kind of very, very um, powerful kind of aurora that, you know, I've seen her um, speak on YouTube, um, but you've, you've uh, seen her speak live. Um, am I right? And you went to see one of her lectures. Yes. That must yeah, have been I did. pretty incredible. And, but that was really that was probably the last conference of the porn wars. So mm. it was it was very divisive. People were very angry. People were walking out of rooms. But it's so funny thinking about it now. Like people walked out of a room it, these days. And I think the reason that there isn't somebody like Dawkin, how how would she come across in the world of the internet? Yeah. How would she come yeah. across on social media? You can imagine she got so much hate in her lifetime for the body that she lived inside. Yep. You know that fat cow kill yourself style of social media engagement mm. would she have been buried under that would she have censored herself would she have changed her appearance because of it I think not because she was an incredibly powerful confident person but we are not in an environment that is particularly um open I think to people that are that unwilling to conform to all of those socialized ideas about even within feminism about a level of 
beauty or a level of appearance or a level of superficial surface allure that Dawkins was not going to participate in. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of like um, mostly why I'm, I'm so enraptured by her. Um, and yet, and yet, Olivia, you say in your book that she, um, when when you think about her, um, you she made you feel shame. Why is that? I think her sense about sexuality was very dogmatic. That she really thought that everything that happened in people's sexual fantasies or people's sexual lives was very literal and. I don't agree with that. I think that there's an imaginative realm that we can enter into that allows us to experience power in different ways and that that doesn't necessarily mean that's the life you want to live outside of the bedroom or the sexual arena. And I think, you know, there's, I wrote about this a little bit in The Lonely City, that there is a meat-making aspect to pornography and to sexuality itself that sometimes we want to live inside our bodies but we don't want to be served up bloody and braised as meat we don't want to experience that in the outside world so I think her sort of shutting down on an imaginative sphere that sexuality might be mapping out bothered me troubled me mm. um another figure other figures you speak about um in your books, Susan Sontag, um, James Baldwin, um, Ag Agnes Martin, another uh, gay artist. Um, and you write about these gay artists so beautifully um, uh, who were very much persecuted for their sexuality. Why do you think that they were seen as such a threat during their lives? It seems that those, um, those who have sexual orientations outside of heteronormativity have historically been um, seen as threatening to those in power. Why is that? Yeah, I think absolutely. And another queer person in the book is Christopher Isherwood, who was an English writer who lived in Berlin in the 1930s. So he witnessed the whole um, rise to power of, of Hitler and Nazism. And he articulates this very clearly, I think. He says that as those, as those movements start to take control, there is an intense desire to return each sex to its procreative capacities to say, men do this, men look like this, they dress like this, they behave like this. Women, domestic, in the household, carrying children, rearing children. And that clearly drove the Nazi party that the first thing that they do almost is attack, well, trade unionists, but gay people, queer people, the sexual liberationists, anyone who's trying to expand those domains of gender and sexuality. And we're in that, we're in that world again. We're heading towards that kind of world again. And I think um, there's a deep terror about these unruly bodies, about bodies that aren't participating in these sort of deeply ideological categories but those things they're always say those people always want to say that those categories are natural and they clearly aren't I think this happens so much speaking as a non-binary person within the debate around trans people if if all these things you're arguing for men and women it's natural it's not natural to blur it's so natural why are you having to fight so hard to defend it? Why are you having right. to stop people? Like, if that's natural, why not just relax and let it be as it is, if you want it to be as it is? So I think there's a lot of rhetoric that's brought to play on bodies that don't fit into these sort of discourses. There's a lot of desire to keep people very simple, very intelligible, one thing at a time. And 
it's a pity because I think most of us are many things at a time. Most of us, if we really interrogate our existences, are blurring at the edges in all sorts of ways, not just around gender. So our sexualities are complicated things. Our desires are complicated things. And that frightens people. Yeah, yeah, totally. Greyness is a very scary space. I think people yeah. are uncertain. People are uncomfortable with uncertainty. Um, and actually, yeah. I think that's really true. That I, I watch with a sort of older generation around trans people this sort of almost panic of like, is, is that a man or a woman? Can you just tell me though? Really, is it a man or a woman? And it's like, oh, what? It, what is so scary about this? Maybe a fear of getting it wrong. I don't. I don't know how to read this person. We we want to pick. Put people yeah. around us into yeah I've, I've sensed this often when I go to a party people the first thing they'll ask you is like they'll try and box you right so often you go to a party yeah. if you're alone they'll be like do you have a partner or they'll somehow try and box you in by sussing out your situation because like um they don't like I feel like a lot of at least around my um what I've um experienced in my life a lot of people just assume heteronormativity they assume that yeah. you have a husband if you're if you're a woman you know um yeah, it's, it seems pretty crazy that that is like um, still a thing. It's a status quo that people try and, you know, box you immediately the moment you step inside their space. I guess because like, do you think it's because like they just don't know how to engage with someone outside of their own life experience? Is that is that the reason? I, th I think perhaps, and you know, I in some ways, although I had a fairly traumatic time growing up it, in some ways I feel I was very lucky because I, I never operated inside that system I was outside it I witnessed you know my mum was outed we had to run away she lived deep in the closet there were lots of very painful experiences but it did mean that I got to see that quite nakedly that sense of how um, exclusionary it can be and how much terror and hatred there is around the person who is behaving differently that the sort of um real deep fear about it and also as we said earlier with Andrea Dworkin and her dog the sense of oh look here's somebody who perhaps is lower on the packing order and so I can expel some of my sense of poison onto them I think that is a painful operating system of human behavior is the desire to expel poison that we have experienced from somebody else yeah. down to whoever we regard as more deviant or more vulnerable yeah yeah that really breaks my heart um, before I ask Olivia um, my following questions, I just wanted to remind uh, people in the audience to uh, hop on the Slido if you have a question that you're thinking about or hop on and read other people's um, questions and you can vote for them. Uh, so, Olivia, um, one of my favourite chapters in your book is the one where you talk specifically about the way gender has historically been used to control our bodies. Um, and in this chapter, you use Agnes Martin as your guiding light, um, examining her power and her legacy in evading gender. Um, Agnes Martin didn't see herself as a woman. What, did, what was the funny thing that she called herself? I love this so much. Tell us says, that I'm, story. I'm, yeah, somebody had said, um, how, do you, how do you feel as a woman artist? Which is, you know, one of those terrible questions that you get asked all the time. And she said, I'm not a woman, I'm a doorknob, <laughs> which I just love so much. So, you know, it's sort of a Zen because she was very into Zen and she was very into not being, not categorised, refusing categorization. I think her artwork, which is these beautiful 
abstract minimalist strips of color, they, they refuse to be pinned down. You stand close to them and they're clearly stripes. You step away and they turn into these sort of glowing hazes of color. So she's performing this thing in her artwork that she also performs in her life, which is, you can't catch me. You can't put me in your boxes. I am going to evade all those boxes. So even us talking about her as a woman artist or as a gay artist, she'd be livid, she'd be furious. Um, because she didn't want to live inside a category. She, I think there's a place in that for her spirituality that her Buddhism really was about. These things are just concepts. The, a person isn't these things. A person is all kinds of different things. And then also I think it was, in a sort of sadder way, a product of the immensely homophobic period that she lived through. And this was something historically that I didn't know a great deal about when I started to write the book, that at the same time as the Red Scare and the McCarthyist attacks on communists, there was also what's called the Lavender Scare, which was really, again, very state-sponsored homophobia, a purge of gay people from state uh, civil service type jobs that also infiltrated into schools, all kinds of... Um, you know, societal positions. And you'd think Agnes Martin as an artist was very free from that, but no, she she was a teacher. She existed in universities and schools for a long time in her life. And she was absolutely terrified of being discovered, found out, outed. And so you have to understand that at least a part of her desire not to be categorised is, if I'm categorised, I'm trapped. And she's also somebody, she was schizophrenic, she was constantly in and out of mental hospitals. And this is a period where electric shock therapy is the recommended treatment for homosexuality. So the stakes for her, I think, were incredibly high. And that sense of saying, I'm a doorknob, it's hilarious, but it's also, don't pin me down, because if you pin me down, it could be very dangerous for me. Mm. And she managed to escape, didn't she? She um, ran off and found her own sanctuary. Um, what happened towards the end of her life? She found great fame, didn't she? I mean, she became very famous. In some ways, she sort of courted that fame, and in some ways, she resisted it very firmly. She was living in Taos, New Mexico, for a long time in a house that she built herself miles from anywhere, miles from the nearest water or electricity. A very sort of backwards life. Um, and her paintings became hugely successful and desirable. And I think, you know, she struggled with mental health issues throughout her life, but towards the end of her life, she, she moved into town. I think things became a little bit softer around her. She let some people into her life and she carried on. This is the thing that always moves me the most. She carried on painting to the end. Her paintings got smaller because she couldn't cope with the enormous canvases, mm. but she kept making art. And her final work is this tiny wobbly drawing of a plant that she did as she was dying. And this sense of there are all of these containers, there are all of these forms that being enters, and then it changes again, it's continually changing. So she was very important for me in the book that we're talking about real rigid bodily categories and the kind of things that can happen to them that are very painful. And then there's this person who's like, I'm offering you an escape route, here's an open window, would you like to join me? And that, that felt really moving and really powerful. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you a more personal question now, Olivia, if that's okay with you, um, regarding your own identity as a non-binary person. In your book, you write about a time roughly a decade ago where you say, 
At the time, my own gender was like a noose around my neck. I was non-binary, even if I didn't know the word. I'd always felt like a boy inside, a femme gay boy. What I wanted as a trans person was to escape the binary altogether. I wanted Magnus Hirschfeld's 43 million genders, resplendent and unpoliced, a pool you can dive into and swim away. What was this concept of the 43 million genders and how did it influence your journey into your non-binary identity? I mean, I think by the time I encountered it, I understood much more of how I felt about my own gender, but I, so I recognised it with great joy. And I mean, Hirschfeld, it's very like Virginia Woolf in, in Orlando. He has the same sort of vision of immense complexity, immense exuberance and abundance of natural form. He's very on board for that. He is somebody who, as we alluded to earlier, he has ideas that I don't agree with, but on his senses about gender and sexuality, he's just like, let's stop trying to make categorizations. Let's stop trying to put people into boxes and let's just listen. So what he did is he did enormous questionnaires with a huge amount of people in Berlin in the 1930s to find out how they felt about their genders and how they felt about their sexualities. And what he discovered from this vast semi-scientific survey is, wow, this is so beyond any kind of categorization. This is, so this is long before Kinsey, but with sort of similar results. People are really diverse. People's sexualities are really diverse. People's gender positions are really diverse. We can try and make some boxes and force people into them, sure, but actually 43 million genders is kind of you know maybe three of us are experiencing the same ones we're very different from each other and I think that um vision of diversity just appeared it gave me such a kick it just appealed to me so much it really tallied with my experience of how people are if they aren't told how they are that that they have much stranger and more interesting ways of being modes of desire than than we might think. And if we give them two boxes and say, you've got to tick one, well, some people find that very easy and some people find that deeply painful and difficult. But if we give them 43 million boxes to tick, maybe that's going to be a little bit more precise about what people are actually like. Did he, how did he come up with 43 million? Was that just a random? <laughs> no, I think, he, I think he had quite complicated maths, but I'm not very wow. good at maths, so I couldn't really follow it. <laughs> um, uh, I guess I wanted to ask you a little bit more about um, your activism and how you came into uh, writing, Olivia. You started off as an environmental uh, activist in your late teens and you moved on to study herbal medicine before turning to writing. Um, tell us a little bit about this trajectory and how you think your experiences um, in those fields uh, made you the writer you are today. Yeah, so I, I do come from a very non-traditional background because I didn't finish university I dropped out to go and live on road protests and I, I think that that was a, a fantastic grounding really to, to start out um really with the with the body as a force with with a sense of what it's like to try and resist systems of power um and like many environmental activists, I burnt out. It, it's a harsh way to live. It's very painful to try and convey to people, especially then in the 90s, although perhaps it's even worse now, but the realities of climate change when people would not take it in, would not believe in it. That, that was really 
agonizing. Mm. Um, and so I sort of wanted to go from that to doing something that felt useful and non-damaging on an environmental level, which herbal medicine seemed to really fit with. And that, that really was my grounding as a writer, because what you're doing in those encounters is really asking somebody to unfold the story of their body, which is the story of their life. People would come in and tell me, you know, they have menstrual problems or they have incipient, they've got endometriosis, they've got cancer, they've got anxiety, all these different things. But actually when they talked about it, it was the story of their whole life. It was the story of whatever traumas they'd mm. experienced. It was the social factors, it was the political factors, it was the housing, they had all of these different things. Very much like the experience Reich had as an early, as a therapist in his 20s. And I think that kind of grounding in people's stories and people's bodily stories and, and the political dimension to that is what made me a writer and is what made me the kind of writer that I am. It trained me in how to interview, it trained me in how to listen, but it also trained me in how to think about connectivity. Mm. Um, and you do have this, um, I, I've noticed reading all your books now, that you have this incredible power in your writing, um, which can only kind of be, in my opinion, kind of um, espoused through someone who's like very hyper aware of their own bodies. And like, I feel like that's incredibly rare. Um, do you, do you, and obviously, you know, the history that you've talked about, your experience with herbal medicine and treating patients like that, that obviously, you know, there's a correlation between those, those things. Um, is, there, is there a way that we can teach, do you think, young people how to be more kind of sensitive and hyper aware about their own bodies? God, that is such a good question. That's not a question I've ever been asked before. I think... Um, Yes, I'm sure there is. And yes, I'm sure that that's really key as well, that being able to take our own bodily experiences seriously, being able to really listen to what we, this, this is Frank's argument, you know, we hold all of these things inside us. We hold the individual emotional traumas that we've experienced and we hold all of these political, both systems and, and the pain that those systems cause inside our own bodies. And I think allowing people to feel conscious about that, doing that kind of trauma work, but keeping it political. It's not individual. It's not about wellness. It's not about mm. optimizing the self. It's about us. It's about how we live collectively and we share collectively. And I think so much of how we've, we've talked all through this conversation about why are people violent to each other? And I think so much of it is to do with trauma, is to do with those kind of being taught very young to shut down on emotional experience, not to feel rage, not to feel fear, not to express things, boys aren't allowed to cry, all of yeah. these conditionings that cause us to become tenser and tenser and harder and harder. So then we enact that kind of um, fearfulness on other people around us. And I think encouraging children to be tender, being unafraid of their feelings, and being really aware of the feelings of others. Again, this is a question we looked at earlier. How, how do you make people aware that other people are ill in childhood? And it is interesting yeah. that Reich ended up thinking childhood is the important time, that it's really at the beginning of our lives when we're still soft and open, that we can start to put into place better systems. Yeah, yeah. I guess we need better models, right? Better um, parents Gentler. or guardians, adults who can show or lead the way. Um, I'm curious as someone who does, you've spent decades thinking about art and thinking about artists and their power. Have you ever delved into art making? <laughs> um, 
No, I make collage things sometimes, but no, I'm not. I can't really even draw. But I spend a lot of time with artists and I love being around artists. But I think, you know, you have you have the thing you can do. And for me, it is absolutely writing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we are now up to the stage in our conversation where we're going to open it up to the audience. Um, I'm going to read you some questions, but I have one more uh, question from uh, myself that I'd, I'm really curious to ask you, Olivia. Um, Returning to your book, uh, I wanted to ask you something related to the issues surrounding race that you cover uh, in the chapters about the civil rights movement in America. Uh, as a white writer, could you explain the nuances of writing about race and racialized bodies um, from the white subject position? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, it feels like, and this is something that Claudia Rankine says really clearly, it's white people's responsibility to think about white supremacy. It is the job of white people. And for me to write that book that's about all kinds of bodies and to not try and address that and to not try and think about the roles that white people have played, you know, to take a position of, well, I'm a progressive person, I'm a trans person, so I'm innocent Mm. of those things, I won't articulate them and I won't think about them. I think that's wrong. I think that's wrong. I think you have to engage. And, you know, I think feeling like there's a potential of getting it wrong and that you have to be very careful is a good thing to feel as a writer. I think that need for care is crucial. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, we have one question from a gentleman in the audience, Olivia. Um, there are a lot of similarities between the private school system here in Australia and the UK. How do you think a world without private schooling will affect, um, will, will impact the issues that you talk about in your book? That is a fantastic question. Funny, I've been thinking about this a lot. I'm working on a new book and William Morris is one of the characters and I've been reading about his fairly horrific schooling at Marlborough, which is an English public school, as in private school. Um, yeah, I think abolished a lot of them. I don't. I think that they embed a system of cruelty. I think in the UK, our leaders for the last over a decade have all come from the same, pretty much, well, not now, all come from the same school. And they, those schools are appalling. And also there should be a generous education system for all. We shouldn't have segregated education. I'm deeply opposed to it. I love that question. Yeah, yeah. Um... Uh, total ditto <laughs> on my end. Um, oh, did you hear that, Olivia? I did, but repeat it again because oh, okay. I want so, to make sure um, It's right. a question about art and its correlation with climate change and the power of that. How do we use art and make art um, in a way that can uh, catapult real change without being earnest or too preachy? In, in <laughs> considering yeah, that's climate change. <laughs> I think it's really hard. I think it's really hard. My new book is about... Um, the, the sort of search for utopia and it, one of the things that I keep coming up against is that earnest voice and I'm very much trying to find a way of of dodging it of not sounding sanctimonious or self-righteous but staying open staying open to possibilities taking pleasure in possibilities and in, in you know one of my real role models is the filmmaker and artist Derek Jarman and I think he always hits that tone right he's writing during the AIDS crisis as he was dying and yet his sense of sort of exuberance and pleasure in possibilities, in the possibility of nature's regenerative capacities, in the possibility of things growing in, you know, outlandish and seemingly impossible conditions. That tone to me feels like the right tone. And maybe some people are really invigorated by dystopias, but personally I'm not. I find them very frightening. And I don't feel like 
artists should be committing so much emotional and intellectual and aesthetic energy right now into serving a cause that is, a cause that is already doing perfectly well without us. The right are fine. It's us who need to really marshal our resources and think about places that we want to live in, worlds that we want to live in, and then get ourselves there. And I think that is the artist's job, is to envisage possibilities. And part of that is making them feel, you know, electrifying, exciting, desirable. And that sanctimonious, I know everything already tone is not the right tone to lead us there, I think. Mm, beautifully put. Um, we have a question here uh, that's very simple. Tell us about your garden. and there'll be a lot about that in my new book as well uh so all my life I lived in rented houses and I was constantly getting evicted by landlords and I'd make gardens wherever I was I've I've always loved to make gardens but now finally I'm in a house that has more long-term possibilities and uh it was a garden that was made in the 1960s by quite a well-known garden designer who was queer and who lived here this is the only garden he ever made for himself. So he made lots of gardens across the world, but this, this was his personal one. And it's made of lots of small spaces. It's very beautiful. And when I moved in, it was it had been neglected for about 15 years. So it was like a lost garden. It was like the secret garden. And the last few years, as I've been writing and speaking, I've also been spending time restoring it and trying to, trying to find the garden that's sort of buried beneath ivy. And that's been a pretty great, thing to be able to do during these very frightening times to be able to just make a space that is beautiful and also is clearly a a haven for other species too yeah yeah you're not the only um writer who is uh, an enamored gardener there's a deep correlation between writers artists and gardening isn't there yeah Incredible. Um, The next question, Olivia, uh, what role do you think language has in how we understand our bodies and the bodies of other people? Is it language that creates categories and hierarchies? Oh, my God, these questions are so good. Um, That is really interesting because I think language does both. Language can absolutely shut us down into categories, but also Language can open up everything. Language can estrange us from our bodies and make us feel, you know, in that sort of way that when you go to the doctor, you've got to sort of put your experience into very small symptomatic categories. But at the same time, language is the bridge we build between bodies. Along with touch, that's that's how we make our experience clear. It's how a person who died 100 years ago can make plain to me what their bodily experience was. So... You know, obviously, as a writer, I I have great faith in language at the same time as finding it frustrating. But I think words can be a pathway to real connection and openness. They they can be aware. And I think it's, again, it's, it's up to the language user to be willing to engage in complexity and ambiguity rather than wanting to have everything rigidly pinned down and um, kind of perfectly encapsulated. Mm. We have a question here from Vivian. Uh, Why do you think there has been a rise in transphobic commentaries in our media and by public figures? I think that it has been expedient for public figures and the media to do that because I think it's been somehow the um, way that they've galvanised the the anti-woke movement, which is basically a way of saying anti 
any sort of progressive ideals or any sort of taking other people's bodily experiences as seriously as we take the experiences of white men. So I think there's been a pretty, uh, you know, without being a conspiracy theorist about it, I think trans people have been used as weapons in that war. And I think that rhetoric has become more and more and more extreme because it's a great way to get people on board. You know, those sort of lying stories that are like, children the age of five are being taught that they can change their bodies and they can have any gender they want. And it's like, mm. maybe it's a little bit more nuanced than that. And maybe those children already feel those things and we're giving them space to talk about it. And maybe that's okay. So I think it, it is something that's been weaponized in a larger ideological campaign that is driving us further and further towards the right. And I think the same thing happened with refugees just before. I think that there was a real a uh, global desire to talk about refugees in those sort of horrific terms of you know, cockroaches, that, that sort of language. And then that became about trans people. So it's all part of a larger campaign to say some bodies are good, some bodies bad. And in order to preserve the bodies that we regard as good, we're going to have to pass these laws and we're going to have to make protest illegal. or We're going to have to do these different things to keep us safe in our fantasy of a one body nation so I think it's worth being very very um alert to that sort of language and pushing back on it wherever you can pushing back on it with any conversation you have with a person who reads that kind of media which to me sometimes includes my parents like I'm a trans person and I'm still having to sort of have those conversations and talk about gender in as gentle a way as I can manage Mm. I love your little dig in your book when you talk about gender um your dig about um dig against uh jk rowling by the way that was a very hilarious imagine her horror of discovering 43 million genders (laughs) yeah yeah um olivia i think we have uh one or two final questions and this next one uh, from the audience is about your cultural consumption lately what is the uh, couple of books that you have read recently that you've enjoyed um well, the one I'm reading at the moment is a biography of William Morris, who is such a fascinating figure. You know, he's an, an artist who really fell in love with socialism, became a very radical activist. And that's the sort of person I'm always drawn to, the, the artist who thinks politically. So that's fascinating. That was published a long time ago. And then um, Cookie Mueller was a um, John Waters film star. She was a sort of 1980s New York party girl and she was a writer and she died of AIDS. And she wrote the most beautiful book called Walking Through Clearwater in a Pool Painted Black. And it's just been republished uh, this year and it's electrifying I read it first in the 90s when I was in my teens and again it's one of those books that I wish that every teenage teenager could be given because it it's so expansive it's such a wild life and she's so non-judgmental about people and about people's experiences it feels like a beautiful corrective to the sort of new puritanism that we're experiencing at the moment mm. Uh, our final question from our audience member um, today uh, that we have time for, Olivia. Uh, what would you advise? What would you advise to do when your body doesn't feel like a real body? That is another beautiful question. I think, I mean, that's a lifetime question, and I think one thing I would say is inquiring of your body why it doesn't, spending time with your body. There are all kinds of body-based therapies that arise out of Reich's work. There are bodily trauma therapies. 
there might be things going on there around all the different kind of categories that we've been talking about, about gender, about race, all sorts of different histories of trauma. But I think the most important thing is to just start with curiosity and kindness. Why is this happening? What, what does this mean? And being as fearless as possible about what those answers are. Fearless and, and also keeping protected. I'm very touched by that question. That's a, that mm. feels like a beautiful question to end on. And a very touching advice and wise words from you as well, Olivia. As we close this session, ladies and gentlemen, please give Olivia a round of applause for this amazing conversation. Watch this talk and others from Antidote 2022 on stream, the streaming platform from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching at stream.sydneyoperahouse.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with more ideas at the house.